you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Welcome to the big show, my friends. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. Thanks for tuning in. As always, refer the show to your family, friends, and relatives. Put your arm around them and say, join the family that loves you but doesn't judge you. The Chris Voss Show. The best kind of love. Is love? Is it true love? I don't know if it's true love, but it's we do love you. I don't know if it's true love or if it's just kind of a convenient love. But uh, I'll let you make up your mind on what you think about it. But hopefully you love the show and everything we do here. We always have the brilliantest minds on the show and things that will make you smarter. And as everyone knows, the smarter you are, the sexier you are. Plus, uh, the more happy you are with life. And uh, happiness is uh, is a joy to have. Because uh, it's sometimes fleeting in life. Uh, anyway, guys, go to Goodreads.com for it says Chris Voss. Go to YouTube.com for it says Chris Voss. Go to uh, LinkedIn, all the groups on LinkedIn, the LinkedIn newsletter, all those places across the internet that Chris Voss Show operates at. Uh, we have another amazing gentleman on the show. He's a brilliant mind who's going to expand your mind so much you may uh, need to order an expanded cranium on Amazon. You can actually get that. There's an aisle for it. Uh, He's the author of the newest book to come out, October 2nd, 2021, Our Fourth Age, A Village Elder's Story for Young Homines Sapientes After Surviving Their Future History. We'll get talking about what that title means and everything else. Uh, Mr. Terry Vernon Thiel is on the Thiel is on the show with us today. He's going to be talking to us about his uh, book. He has uh, been a... Uh, for over 40 years experience helping government officials, uh, corporate officers, and graduate students think about the future. He served in the U.S. Treasury, CIA, DIA, and the Executive Office of the President and his work for GE, AB Electrolux, and Berkshire Hathaway's uh, Lube Lubrizel Corporation. Uh, Terry has taught strategy and innovation at several universities and business schools. He's received his B.A. magnum cum laude in the history for Princeton and Juris Prude Doctorate from NYU School of Law. If I can learn to pronounce things this morning, that would be great. Uh, he is a graduate of the National War College and has authored a book examining how we got to where we are and what it might mean for the future survivability of our species. Uh, his current book is out now. Uh, welcome to the show, Terry. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having, thanks for coming on the show and having us with you as on your uh, brilliant books interview. Give us your dot com so people can find you on those interwebages in the sky. Well, frankly, uh, the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. There you go. Uh, do you want to give that dot com? Do you know the dot com off the top of your head? TV Thiel, uh, TV, T H I E L E at LinkedIn.com. There you go. So, uh, what motivated you want to write this book? Is this your first book, Terry? It is, and it was about 40 years in the oven. There you go. Uh, I, I spent the better part of 40 years uh, trying to get people to think about the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, throughout that time, there were some themes and trends that seemed to appear 
and uh, I finally got around to, to putting finger to keyboard and uh, uh, wrote it all down. Writing it was uh, uh, an educational process in and of itself, and uh, I'll, I'll get back to that uh, later about how uh, the publishing uh, process today is an example uh, of some of the changes we're witnessing. There you go. There you go. So uh, why did you title the book Our Fourth Age? And then uh, we'll need to get into what is a homines sapientes? Most uh, people would say homo sapiens uh, and think that that's plural uh, as the Latin name for the species. Mm-hmm. When I sent the book out for comment uh, to a number of academics, one of them, a classics professor, a brilliant uh, gentleman, um, immediately came back to me and said, your Latin's wrong. <laughs> and it turns out that the plural for homo sapiens is homines sapientes. Oh. The reason I stuck it in the title, I dropped a footnote to it in the prologue, is a classic demonstration of how we think we know something when we actually don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in some respects, I, I think that's the, the story of uh, uh, our, our current state of affairs as a species. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think we know lots of things that we actually don't. Yeah, the bit of the Dunning-Kruger sort of effect. Yes, yes, very much so, very much so. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's amazing to me how many people will live in their in these uh, bubbles of social media and news. You know, they they kind of they they just end up being. Uh, Oh, what's the term that they use? Uh, confirmation bias, where they, mm-hmm. where it just exactly. it just supports you know whatever sort of thing you believe, whether it's uh, whether it's sane or completely insane or completely off. Well, and and again, there's interesting context for what you're saying. Uh, I'm I'm going to back out and and give you sort of the broad spread of of how uh, the book approaches our history as a species. Uh, as the title suggests, I would suggest that we are entering our fourth age. Hmm. Now, the first age, I'd argue, is go back 200,000 years, thereabouts. And when we first became anatomically modern, hmm. okay, and we were hunter-gatherers on the savannah. Roll the clock forward to, let's say... 12,000 B.C., mm-hmm. and at that juncture, we evolved into farmers and herders. That's our second age. Isn't that called the pre-McDonald's age, <laughs> pre-Big Mac age? I think that's the scientific term for yes. it. Yeah. Go forward again to, I'll pick a date, 1785. Why, why that date? Well, that's about the time that steam engines became commercially available, mm-hmm. and were reliable. And that jump in energy production powered us into the third age of mass production where we made things. We were manufacturers. That's the Big Mac age then, yeah. The Big Mac. Quarter yes. pounder age, I think, uh, fries. And I picked 2020 with COVID as sort of the jump off for what I'll call the fourth age. Huh. That's interesting. Why do you- and I'm characterizing the fourth age. The justification for it is based upon what I would argue are dramatic 
societal and technological changes, Mm. the like of which our species has never before experienced. Well, that was definitely something that was a a huge change. And how many, many, uh, uh, just for... uh, conversation's sake do we have more ages after the fourth age i'm just yes curious. actually i'm 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 working on the fifth age assuming we survived the fourth yeah that's what i'm wondering about and uh <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. all right let's let's we'll stick with one age at a time yeah, let's we, let's talk a bit about the fourth age we have enough what societal yeah. changes are we are we talking about well mm-hmm. i would argue that for the what the data tells us is that for the first time ever, more people live in cities than in the country. For the first time ever. When you look at the demographics of the world, everybody's concerned about overpopulation. Well, if you look at the data, half of the countries of the world are not reproducing themselves. Mm. Japan, Korea, Mm. Eastern Europe, are forecast to be losing 40%, 40% of their population. China just crossed the threshold, too. China has uh, reached its peak population, mm-hmm. and it is getting older and mm-hmm. smaller. Yeah. Interestingly enough, when you speak about India and China, India is still growing, but they both have a major issue that other countries don't have. For cultural and legal reasons in the two countries, for decades, they have been self-selecting male babies over female babies. Mm -hmm. So in China, you've got 25 million Chinese men for which there are no Chinese women. And in India, I want to say it's above 60 million Indian men for which there are no Indian women. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at social disruption, not only are shrinking populations disruptive, but that there's a heck of a lot of unrequited testosterone involved in those two countries. Oh, yeah. 95% of the population increase that the UN is forecasting between now and the end of the century is all Africa. Wow. Some of those countries, I want to say 90 Nigeria, I'd have to go book, look at the data, are forecast to grow up to 450%. In Africa. So when you look at huge population increases, huge population decreases, and urbanization, uh, we are going through dramatic changes that we have never seen before. And I would argue that uh, that my grandchildren... Any child born now is in a unique position compared to any child born previously. Because mm-hmm. any child for the past 200,000 years could look at their parents and their grandparents and say, my life is going to look something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true anymore. And partly because of societal change but also partly because of technological change. Yeah. When you look at what is going on in terms of 3D printing, artificial intelligence, the Internet, synthetic biology, 
nanotechnology, cheap, ubiquitous off-grid energy, and there are several other disruptive technologies. They are all coming to commercialization at the same time. What that means is we are going from a third-age global economic model of a few making many to a fourth-age economic model of many making a few. Wow. And what that means is most of the economic criteria that businesses have used to measure success, economies of scale, inventory, uh, um, uh, barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. Well, with 3D printing and new materials and instantaneous communication, those barriers to entry go away. Anyone can compete with anyone. So the traditional model of where you made 80, 80% of your revenue off of 20% of your SKUs, mm-hmm. you know, that's flattened out. You make 100% off of 100% because the model of, of economic performance is going to be very different. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not everywhere all at once, but it's, it's the, uh, the old quote, uh, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. Oh, wow. So you're seeing it in certain aspects, and the most obvious is with music and uh, publishing. Uh, This is uh, Christensen's Long Tail, Mm -hmm. where uh, the Internet and and computers have enabled a revolution in how music is made, sold, distributed, you know, Mm -hmm. Netflix versus... Uh, Errols, <laughs> if you uh-huh. if you remember VHS tapes, yeah, uh, I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and and so I getting back to my book. Uh, when I was first writing book, I thought I'll go find an agent, and the agent will help me go find a publishing company, <laughs> and the publishing house will you know make my book a New York Times bestseller. And I rapidly discovered that agents are only interested in you if you have already published or you mm-hmm. already have a large social media following, yeah. neither of which I had. I luckily had a, a colleague of mine who was in the process of writing his first book, and he was about six months ahead of me, so he mentored me through the process. Mm-hmm. Both of us self-published on Amazon. I want to say 85% of the books that are published today are self-published. Yeah, I would believe it. And it is a fundamental revolution in the publishing world. It's an entirely different approach. Mm -hmm. So in any event, getting back to that fourth age and that disruption between society and technology, and then the question is, well, how well are we managing it? Well, from a business standpoint, I point out that the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company in 1935 was 90 years. And in 2016, it's 18. Wow. That is amazing, man. In 1970 to 2015, the average lifespan of all publicly traded companies nearly halved. So what that data tells me is that modern business 
is confronting problems it can't solve. Now, on the political side... Before we switch to political, what's the impetus behind that? Is it because change is moving faster or innovation is moving faster? The rate rate and degree of change are accelerating to the point where if you aren't thinking about... The problem with strategic planning, geez, Mm -hmm. I did strategic planning for decades for companies. Mm -hmm. And I think the patron saint... Of planners, you see a copy of my book in the background, and the screaming mm-hmm. lady on the color or on the cover, mm-hmm. that is Cassandra, who was the daughter of Priam, the king of Troy. Oh. Cassandra was the priestess of Apollo. Apollo approached her seeking sexual favors, which she refused him, and he cursed Cassandra with the ability to foretell the future uh. that she could not, that no one would believe and she could not change. <laughs> Sounds like that's crazy. what's, that's the patron saint for strategic planners. You, you work with a company and you say, yeah, and they don't believe you. <laughs> and none of it happens. <laughs> yeah, I love it. But that rate of change is, is demonstrated by a book that came out 2019 by a Swedish physician, Hans Rosling. Uh, the book is called Factless. In fact, it's right there. Uh, and Rosling had gone out. He was troubled by what he was seeing in terms of people he, were, he was talking to who didn't seem to really understand the state of the world. And so he went to Davos in 2015, and he had a series of generic questions about the state of the world. Basic information that you would think that the people who are setting policy and direction would know. Okay. Mm-hmm. He then went in 2017 and polled 12,000 people in 14 different countries. So he has a very large basis for this analysis. And I'll give you an example of one of the questions. And all of the questions had three answers, A, B, or C. They could pick. Mm -hmm. In the last 20 years, the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty has A, almost doubled, B, remain more or less the same, or C, almost halved. 93% of the 12,000 got that wrong. Wow. 39% of the attendees at Davos got it wrong. Mm-hmm. The answer was C, almost halved. Wow. Now, the point being, and well, at the end of the day, Out of the 13,000 people, no one got all 13 questions right. Mm -hmm. 15% got them all wrong. And the average score was 15% right. Only one person got 11 out of 13 right. Wow. The observation that Ronsling made uh, was, uh, well, I'll, I'll read you a quote if I could. I have tested audiences from all around the world and from all walks of life. 
medical students, teachers, university lecturers, eminent scientists, investment bankers, executives in multinational companies, journalists, activists, senior politicians. Most of them also get most of the answers wrong. Some even score worse than the general public. A few of the most appalling results came from Nobel laureates and medical researchers. <laughs> By law of averages, even a troop of chimps would score 33% on each three-answered question. Wow, that's offensive. And, and, and we got beaten out by chimpanzees. And I've seen so, those people that can get beaten out by chimpanzees. I think I've yeah. them on social media. So the point being... I'm on social media, so that's a <laughs> that's a kick at me, too. I'm a, I'm a boomer. I don't, you know, it's, it's new to me. But the point <laughs> is, if the people who are in charge don't know the facts, how could you ever expect them to set the right policies? That's true. Now, I'm going to go back to 200,000 years in the first age. Because that's not irrelevant. We learned some fundamental things 200,000 years ago, instincts, which are still with us. And I would argue those instincts basically summarize, I'll give four common, the first of which is we are afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. And when we're afraid of something, we tend to overreact violently. Secondly, we discovered that living in groups improved our chances of surviving and finding a mate and passing on our genes. So we are intensely social animals. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, we discovered that improving our status within the group further improved our chances of surviving and getting a better mate to pass on our genes. Mm-hmm. So we are status climbers. We will lie, cheat as a, as a species. We will lie, cheat, steal, and kill other hominins to improve our status within our group. And fourth and finally, we're curious. Not in any altruistic sense that we want to understand the divine, but rather we want to know what's over the hill because it might eat us. Those four instincts still drive us today. Mm-hmm. And the challenge we're facing in the fourth age is the rate and degree of change are coming at us so fast mm-hmm. that it's frightening. And so we tend to overreact violently. And what we do is we find groups that we think explain the the situation Mm -hmm. for us, that give us some sense of comfort. Mm -hmm. And whatever the top person in that group is telling us to do or telling us what the state of the world is, we believe it and we go with it because to do anything else is scary. (laughs) And as we've just seen, the people at the top of these pyramids don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> they don't know the facts. And the rate of change is such uh, that, that they're, they're incapable of keeping up. We can, Houston, we got a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's moving so fast, it's, we're losing track. We're losing ground, maybe. Well, 
the way the way we think, uh, there's what they call the DIKW model: data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. Data is all of the stuff out there, everything you see here, and all the information flowing around. And when you're challenged with a particular issue or question, you go through all of that data and you pull out the useful bits, and that's information. And then you analyze the information in order to figure out how to do something. And virtually every business manager is a knowledge manager. They know how to do something. Now, the difference between knowing how to do something and knowledge and wisdom is knowing what to do, not necessarily how to do it. And so we find so many of our leaders are knowledge managers who have learned how to do something and they keep doing it mm-hmm. because they know how to do it and they're comfortable with it and changing it is frightening. Yeah. There are very few people, there are very few people that take the, you know, the step from knowledge to wisdom uh, and deciding, do we really want to, do we really want to be doing that? I don't know if that's a good idea. Maybe we, maybe we ought to try something else here. Well, it, it seems we always go round and round. The one thing I always say that people have heard a million times on the show is the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. So uh, thereby we just go round and round and we end up kind of seemingly repeating the same history and problems and mistakes that we make as a, as a, as a uh, group of humans. Well, you know, just a classic example of, of how much we've changed we currently consider dyslexia, autism, and ADHD as negatives, as, as mental incapacities uh, that, that need to be cured. But it makes you wonder, well, why, why, where did they come from? Well, ADHD, or I should say dyslexia, I misspoke. Dyslexia was never an issue until we started writing. The ability to to switch the letters, that didn't impact anybody before there were letters to switch. Or something to write with. And in fact, all three of those attributes, dyslexia, autism, and ADHD, Psychiatrists argue they were critical survival mechanisms 200,000 years ago that better enabled a tribe to survive. Because the guy that can't sit still and is always fidgeting and going off and doing something is the guy that finds out what's over the hill. Mm -hmm. And the autistic guy that is really good at napping flints makes the best spare points. So what we've pre, what we've now classified as as uh, human frailties were in fact part of our survival toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so where do we where do we go in our fourth age? What, what what can we learn? Because clearly, you know, your book is trying to teach people, you know, what what our fallacies are and and where we lack. Right. Um, I mean, how do we how do we 
do we need to change course? How do we change course? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's the hard part of the book. <laughs> uh, and and again, what I did is I applied some business planning tools. I did some scenario planning on what the world might look like. Uh, I think scenario planning is more valuable than forecasting because it forces you to think about scenarios that may be low probability but Hmm. high impact. Hmm. And whereas forecasting is just looking at high probability. Hmm. And when you, when you take a look at those from a societal standpoint, if we did nothing to change course, things don't look very good for uh, a large portion of the world uh, because of those societal and technological changes. Yeah. I was just noticing, you know, you talked earlier in the show about uh, uh, about how China and, and uh, Japan and other things are in declining birth rate. We're also in America in a declining birth rate and just globally. Well, but, but interestingly, uh, one of the... Um, demographics experts that I've worked with, a gentleman by the name of Dick Hokanson, argues that this is the Anglo-Saxon century. Hmm. Because looking at the data, he says that the United States, Canada, UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, of all of the developed world, we are the closest to maintaining a, a birth rate that will maintain the population. Hmm. But more importantly, those are the countries where the talented, ambitious, educated people in other countries want to move. Yeah. And so we tend to have our populations augmented by um, self-starting people who are, are willing to take the risk to get up and, and change their circumstances. What about our marriage rates and our birth rates? Because those are in decline. In fact, massively, there's been this this uh, huge thing that's going on where we have fewer men going to college than ever before. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, they have women outpacing them. And one of our societal issues that we have is women usually date up hypergamously. They usually date someone who earns more than them and has more resources and security. It's it's actually a biological thing. Um for eons of time. And now we have uh, the, the problem we have is, you know, these young men are going to college. So their financial futures are likely going to be impacted. I know some uh, companies are starting to change where they're, uh, I think even an airline said they're going to not require a college degree for men to do stuff, but men have been kind of tuning out and some of the social media things that have been going on and impacting uh, some of the expectations of both parties have been delusional. And so they're not mating, they're not marrying up. Uh, you know, I lived in Vegas for 30 years, and I, I remember the moment Vegas announced that, uh, hey, people aren't getting married anymore, so we're not running 24 hours a day on our licensing. And I was like, that's an interesting sign, um, uh, especially when you consider how, you know, drunk people get in Vegas and end up married. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed. But uh, the marriage rate's falling, and, and the marriage rate, is, you know, families and marriages and, and all that stuff is a key tax building block for the U.S. government and governments around the world. Uh, 
you know, making money and then, of course, a growing tax base, you know, like like we talked about earlier. So um, are, are those are those things, the stuff you discuss in your book or have you thought through those uh, sort of elements? Well, again, I've been looking at the demographics with a um, longer time frame. Okay. So if you look out 10 years, you look out 20 years, there's there's always some variation from, you know, five-year period to five-year period as to what's working and what's not working. Hmm. Uh, the demographics experts that, that I've, and I'm not an expert in the area, but the ones that I was reading seem to suggest that between immigration and the general stability of Anglo-Saxon societies, that we're in a better place. Maybe we're not in the best place, but we're in a better place versus the rest of the world. Hmm. Uh, I, again, I look at uh, a country that's getting, uh, uh, Russia's losing 14% of its population. Yeah. M- meanwhile, Africa, uh, the average country is growing by 200%. Uh, both of those are extremely destabilizing. Whereas the the shifts in our demographic profile, pro or con, are, are let's say closer to the error bar, such that we can so- socially we can manage them. Mm-hmm. Whereas others in other countries are virtually unmanageable. Hmm. Um, and and of course, it, it all depends upon how it plays out. If if I had to forecast what I think the future holds in terms of what will save us, because, again, we get violent when we're afraid, and there's a lot of scary things going on. Mm-hmm. The one thing that stands out for me, and it, and it really came back to a year ago, my daughter-in-law was sitting there with my four grandchildren in July, and they were watching... Christmas and July movies. Hmm. So they were watching Home Alone. And Macaulay Culkin uh, was watching a uh, taped movie on a VHS player about some gangsters. Oh, yeah. And my grandson looks to (laughs) my daughter-in-law and says, what's that machine? What What is that? What is that thing? Strange and she explained, well, back in the day, you could get a VHS player or a beta player, and what you'd do is you would go to a store, and when movies came out, they would ship to these stores these little boxes with tapes in them. And there'd be rows and rows and rows of these boxes on these shelves, and you could, if you were lucky enough to get there fast enough for a popular movie, you'd grab one of those, and you rent it and took it home, and you stuck it in that machine, and then you played the tape. And then at the end, we have another machine that you would take that out, put it in the other machine to rewind the tape before you took it back. And my son-in-law, who's or my uh, grandchild, I should say, who's a bit of a smart ass, you know, looked at her and said, "How did you live like that?" <laughs> and there's a there's a wonderful YouTube video of two teenagers being given a rotary phone. Oh yeah, I love that. And video. you know, I'm trying to figure out how to use it. The point I'm making with those two examples is our children, my grandchildren, grew up in a time 
where the rate and degree of change was accelerating. Mm-hmm. So for them, they have never lived without having 24-7 instantaneous contact with the entire world. And they have observed rapid evolution in technology, as well as intimate awareness of social trends and, and social activity. Uh, they they are plugged in, clued in. Uh, they they may not be any smarter, but uh, they're more aware, uh, and they are more comfortable with change than I would ever be. I'm again, I'm a boomer, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of stuff scares me. Mm-hmm. And so, my hope for the future is that my grandchildren have the adaptability to cope with the change without becoming so frightened that they do the, the unthinkable thing. And what is the unthinkable thing? Well, I think we're getting close to it in Ukraine. Oh, like war and maybe nukes. Yep. There you go. There you go. It, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us uh, assume that war was something of the past and uh that you know we kind of lived in an age where there was enough balance and economic pressures to keep people from going to war and we found out that we're completely wrong on that there's still madmen in the world who who they really just really don't give a fuck um so there's yeah well that. i i i was i was a minor cold warrior mm-hmm. uh when i worked in the government in the 70s and the 80s and uh I'm going through deja vu at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, it's like I've 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 seen this movie before. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take much to spin out of control. And, no, uh, no, it sure yeah. doesn't. It sure started- doesn't. And when you look, when you and again, it's it's really in a way fascinating when you look at how technology is changing warfare. Yeah. And just the whole process of intel collection and analysis, uh, the amount of what they call open source intelligence, OSINT, um, uh, the ability to, to get uh, satellite imagery of what's going on in real time on open source uh, is just completely and utterly amazing uh, in, in terms of how that impacts what we're doing. The, the problem is that the decision-making that goes along with it isn't up to the task. <laughs> it's true. We're still making sometimes old-world decisions. So uh, let's wrap up. And What do you, what do you uh, hope people come away with with your book? What do you hope they learn? I hope people come away with some humility and recognition. Mm-hmm that what they are absolutely certain that their group believes and their view of the world is, is the right view, might not be all it's cracked up to be. I, mm. I would hope that people would step back and, and you know, if, if all those people at Davos got all those questions wrong and uh, uh, we got beaten up by a troop of monkeys on the basic facts of the condition of the world... <laughs> 
maybe we ought to pay a little more attention uh, to getting the uh, the information uh, right going into our knowledge analysis. Uh, if if people become a little more sensitized mm-hmm. to to the rate and degree of change and appreciate that. And again, I'm counting on the youngsters. I'm counting on young people who go, oh, yeah, I got this. This change, yeah, this is cool. I'm okay with this. Because uh-huh. uh, I'm not. <laughs> scares the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy some of the things that are going on you see in the world. Uh, we seem to be becoming more hedonistic when it really comes down to it, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think partly that's because we're, we're afraid. And so mm-hmm. we say, oh, what the hell? Yeah. We, we just, yeah, throw it out the window. So it's going to be an interesting journey, but hopefully people can read books like yours and learn from them and, uh, hopefully make some better choices, educate themselves. You know, the, the, it's so important to discover the things you don't know that you don't know because, you know, I, as I told my niece and nephew, that's the one thing that will always get you. <laughs> Usually the one thing that always gets you is that one thing you're not watching for the, the things you don't know that you don't know. And it's changing so fast Mm -hmm. that, that, uh, can I give you one last example? Sure. Sustainability. Climate change. Now, I'm not arguing whether or not climate change exists. That, that's not the point I'm trying to make. Mm -hmm. The point I'm trying to make is that to the extent that policymakers are concerned about climate change and they are implementing policies in order to um, offset it. They're creating and implementing policies for the next generation with the unspoken assumption that a third age Henry Ford mass production economic model where few make a many mm-hmm. is going to continue. But those climate change policies are not going to work in a world where many make a few. Mm-hmm. The policy implications, how one addresses millions of manufacturers making on their kitchen tables with 3D printers customized products for their local uh, markets, mm-hmm. that's a whole different footprint and requires a whole different set of policy thinking than what they're doing. And this is where the monkeys are beating us out. Yeah. The monkeys are beating us. It's, it's going to be an interesting ride, man, in the fourth age. And how long do you think this age will last the fourth age? Or does it just determine upon our survival and well, to that, whatever the it's interesting. Uh, I, I don't know, but I do know you, you had asked me, is there a fifth age? The fifth age of the book I'm working on is when we finally expand as a species beyond Earth hmm. and we start populating the solar system. Ah, there you go. So once we start having reproducible populations mm-hmm. someplace else, be it Mars, be it asteroids, be it the moon, be it space stations, whatever the, the, the venues are, what does that do to us as a species as we we leave the place that established our instincts that we've already seen we still carry with us um and how does that uh, how does that change us that fifth mm-hmm. day 
That'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Well, it's been very insightful to have you on the show, Terry. Uh, I've enjoyed it. And and hopefully you've given us advice so that we can survive until the fifth age. <laughs> so there you go. That's, we can only hope. <laughs> that, or, that or at least, uh, you know, you can do whatever you want with everything after I'm gone. That's uh, my policy. I don't have any kids, so I'm not vested in it. But I'm sure you have grandkids. But, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if you want the place to go to hell, just do it after I'm gone. <laughs> I'm getting close to that myself. <laughs> yeah. My dogs probably won't appreciate. They're like, hey, man, we're probably going to be around after you, you idiot. Like, why throw us under the bus? So I don't know. Maybe I'll take them with me. Uh, so there you go. Uh, so, Terry, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. And give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebs once more. T-V-T-H-I-E-L-E, TV Thiel, at LinkedIn.com. There you go. Order of the books, folks, wherever fine books are sold, our fourth age, a village elder story for young. From Amazon. From Amazon. Or wherever fine books are sold. Don't go in the alley bookstores, we always say, because you might get mugged or need a tetanus shot. Our fourth age, a village elder story for young Jomenes sepientes about surviving their future history thanks for tuning in folks uh, be sure to see us on goodreads.com for chess chris foss good uh linkedin.com uh, for chess chris foss and of course uh, youtube.com for chess chris foss thanks for tuning in be good to each other stay safe and get to the fifth age we'll see you next time 